do invite you to be turning to Acts chapter 18. And as you t- turn there, I want to tell you about a story. And it was about an Amish man on a tour bus with a bunch of tourists. And one of the tourists asked, what's the difference between you and us? Well, he said, how many of you have televisions? All the hands went up. How many of you, if you have a family, think you would be better without a television? Practically all the hands went up. He said, how many of you are going to go home and get rid of it? None of the hands went up. (laughs) He says, well, that's the difference between you and the Amish, because we will do it. If it's bad for the family, we will not have it. Now, in that story, the television was not itself labeled or categorized as sin. It was just categorized as expendable. It's not sinful, but also not needful. Permissible, but not beneficial, to use the language of Paul. And about Paul, he's going to be doing something a little bit opposite of that story. Instead of going out of his way to put something out of his life where other Christians might not necessarily see as sinful to have in one's life, Paul is going to add to his life something others of us might scratch our heads and then ask all the wrong questions. Let's stand together, if you're able, and let's read Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. And we'll talk about this a bit more, but verse 21 has some debated material where the BSB relegates it to the footnotes, but for our purposes today I'm just going to include it in our reading. Uh, Beginning with verse 18, Paul remained in Corinth for quite some time before saying goodbye to the brothers. He had his head shaved in Centria to keep a vow he had made, and then he sailed for Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. When they reached Ephesus, Paul parted ways with Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue there and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a while longer, he declined. But as he left, he said, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will come back to you if God is willing. And he set sail from Ephesus. When Paul had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church at Jerusalem. Then he went down to Antioch. After Paul had spent some time in Antioch, he traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Let's pray. Father, um, as we look at this ancient itinerary and Note a few things. We pray that you would illumine what it is your spirit uh, desires for us to receive. We pray that we would be drawn closer into a walk with you, that um, areas in our lives where maybe we have been afraid to examine, that you would open those up for us, that you are beckoning us as a loving father, hoping to cause us to thrive more, That if you call us to repent or if you convict us, that we would be obedient and willing to do the things you call us to do. 
Uh, and that, that would come from a heart not of shame or fear or guilt, but of love. We just want to love you better. And um, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be speaking and not I. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. If you were here last week, I proposed a theory about Paul's time in uh, Corinth. I would actually say it maybe goes a little beyond theory, but uh, I looked at the fact that God showed up to Paul in a vision and he encouraged him to not have fear, but to stay and speak. And I think Paul needed this because he tells the church in Corinth in a letter later on, he says, I, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. And the entire second missionary journey of Paul started with a schism between him and Barnabas. It had closed doors, it had riots, it had arrests and beatings, just a little earthquakes, no small thing, (laughs) some trials before rulers, so that understandably, Paul is probably due a little bit of split nerves, (laughs) a little bit of tiredness and weakness and fear and trembling. And God meets with him and speaks to him. It could be that possible that as Paul is making preparations to move, when he senses in his spirit it's time to leave Corinth, probably the longest he stayed anywhere on his second missionary journey, a year and a half we were told, that maybe he's spiritually preparing himself. Uh, we read this again. Paul remained in Corinth for quite some time. We don't know if this is over and above the year and a half, or it's to be included with the one year and a half, before saying goodbye to the brothers. He had his head shaved in Centria. Corinth is on the Isthmus. I always mess up that word. It's on a little tiny part of land (laughs) in Greece. And Centria was Corinth's southeastern port. And he has his head shaved there to keep a vow he had made. And then he set sailed, then he sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. A vow he had made. Most scholars and Bible teachers and commentators say that this is maybe a reference to a Nazarite vow. And since all of you know what that is, I won't cover it. No, just kidding. Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21 describes this vow. Nazarite simply means one separated or one consecrated. And in that passage, a few practices are laid out for folks who might voluntarily take up this vow, just in case if you want to do this this week. Um, No drinking or eating anything from the grapevine. No touching dead things. And they are not to cut their hair until a specified time. Jewish tradition said at a minimum you should have 30 days. So it was voluntarily. They could do this vow as long as they want. And then the ending ceremony would happen at the tabernacle, which if you're post-tabernacle, that would be the temple in Jerusalem. And among the ceremonial offerings at the end, at the tabernacle, was also offering offering one's cut hair (laughs) to be burnt up. So it seems this possible that this was the vow he was ending, almost ending, and we'll come back to that. 
was this Nazarite vow. Now, again, the Nazarite vow for all, even Old Testament Israelites, let me just make plainly clear, this was for voluntary adherence. Only a few people did it, it seemed, mandatorily, such as Samson or Samuel or John the Baptist, or some have even pointed to Jesus' origins as in Nazareth as kind of a double fulfillment, his holy mission and his character seemed to make it that he was also a candidate as a Nazarite for life as well. So I'm wondering if Paul's Nazarite vow was a season for him. As I alluded to before, a spiritual preparation, as in thank you for being faithful to me in Corinth, for talking to me, and please be with me as I head out into my next season. And we're going to come back to this, but first let's press on a bit further in verse 19. It says, When they reached Ephesus, Paul parted ways with Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue there and reasoned with the Jews. Now the language is a little confusing, but the situation seems to be that Paul parted ways with Priscilla and Aquila when he left Ephesus. It would be a short stay, but then Luke is now giving us a Before he left, here's what Paul did. (laughs) And we would miss it because we'd probably forget it if we don't know our geography or if you're like with me and we haven't been in Acts every single Sunday. But Ephesus was likely one of Paul's intended destinations all along as he first set out on the second missionary journey. It's probably why in the third missionary journey, is going to be bound up in this place quite a bit. But, when Paul was heading out on his second missionary journey, he was trying like mad to minister everywhere, but we heard among the locations that he had been hindered from entering was the Holy Spirit had prevented them from speaking the word in the province of Asia. Now, it's confusing, but the Roman province of Asia is basically what's now Turkey. And where Ephesus is the provincial capital. And on his return journey, he's finally allowed to come to Ephesus to minister. It's a powerhouse city. Some of you may remember that Corinth was the the capital of Achaia, just the Roman province of Greece. Again, Ephesus is the capital of Asia or Turkey. It's going to become a big deal in the Christian community. Ephesus is Paul's Son in the faith, as he calls him, as he writes Timothy, would minister there. It's believed that the Apostle John saw Ephesus as his home church years later. We'll talk about the city more in coming weeks, but Paul has got to be a bit torn as he finally arrives here. Because I believe this is where he's always wanted to be for a few years. Before he was called to Macedonia, and then... He's even requested to stay here. We, we read this again in verse 20. When they asked him to stay a while longer, he declined. But as he left, he said, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will come back to you if God is willing. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now, verse 21 has this debated inclusion, manuscripts that are behind translations like the King James or the New King James have those added words, whereas other manuscripts 
that are behind most modern Bibles today, like the NIV, the NASB, the BSB, don't. At least they keep them in the the footnotes. And I've said this before, but I don't lose sleep (laughs) over these variances like these. And I do believe they're worth pondering if they're part of the Bible. And obviously many folks believe that this phrase should have been put in the Bible. Um, And that's why a lot of Bibles will still put it in the footnotes. And it makes sense to me in this passage. And I'm not going to make any absolute statements here, but I lean towards believing that this was Paul's reasoning. Now, what I'm about to do is not to put forward theories as to why it is not included some manuscripts, but I will theorize why I think some people might be uncomfortable with this in the Bible. Because what does Paul mean? He must keep a feast. For, for, for some Christians who think this through, um, or excuse me, I should say for some Christians who, th- who think that the Old Testament is still in some way, shape, or form bound to Christians, may not think this through because we would might say, of course, Paul's a Jew. He needs to be home in time for Passover. Supposing that the feast is Passover that he's talking about. Which is why apparently he's missed two so far since he spent the year and a half at Corinth. (laughs) And then he gave another half of year or more traveling for missionary endeavors on that second missionary journey. He was okay with missing those two, but Paul says here, I must by all means keep this feast. If we're arguing strictly from a Christian basis and not knowing Paul's context here, no, he doesn't. He's not obligated by the law to keep this feast. If we go back a few chapters in Acts chapter 15, we heard the basic requirements of Christianity. A church council got together to consider this primarily. Can Gentiles be allowed into the church? But that was more than an ethnic question. There was a a racial ideology that went along with Jews receiving their Messiah. Why would Gentiles come in? But also this, Jews understood the Old Testament, specifically the laws in the first five books of the Bible, were delivered to them, not to Gentiles. The bulk of this argument was about circumcision, and if Gentiles should have to undergo it. But the whole law was implied. We see this in questions and statements like Peter. If you go back to Acts 15, verses 10 through 11, Peter says, Now then, why do you test God by placing on the necks of the disciples? Notice that Peter is giving the term disciples in an an inclusive, Christ-following people. A yoke that neither we nor our fathers, speaking of Jewish ancestry here, have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Huh. It's grace through Jesus. It sounds like what Paul might say. Look at the final verdict of the council in the official letter, Acts 15, verses 28 and 29. We hear this from uh, James, but also written in the letter. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond these essential requirements. You must abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. That's all. I wonder if you notice anything absent. I mean, this 
is the letter to a bunch of newly converted Gentiles who did not grow up in the synagogue, didn't grow up hearing any amount of Old Testament, newly converted mostly by Paul and Barnabas, who came in, planted churches, left. Is anything absent? Absent from these requirements is circumcision. Um, absent from these requirements is keeping the Sabbath on Saturday or keeping feasts like Paul thinks he needs to keep back in our text today. In fact, this may blow your mind, but absent from these requirements are large ideas in the Old Testament that many of us might wonder about. What about the Ten Commandments? Do the Gentiles need to do that? What What about lots of Old Testament that many Christians I know will open up to some random law in Leviticus and say, see, the law says don't get tattoos. <laughs> well, let's not be Pharisees here. Let's not nitpick the council wherein they discerned with the Holy Spirit what to lay on the Gentiles. I think all of us in here are Gentiles, by the way. In terms of law following, I think we should also note the context. The laws prescribed to the Gentiles had in large part in mind not worshiping other gods, food sacrificed to idols, not engaging in sexual immorality. But it does come back to this. It appears even at the church council, they discerned in the teachings of Jesus a release from the law as far as it concerns the Christian, period. See, the Messiah is not opening up the floodgates so everyone in the world can be Jewish. He's opening up the floodgates of everyone in the world to be righteous before God and to have the righteousness of God within oneself by having God, the Holy Spirit, directly in us. The law is set aside. The law, in many ways, becomes irrelevant. If you're like, I don't know where you're going with this, Kevin, and I don't like it, well, read your Bible more. <laughs> I would say that uh, a lot of the people get a little bit more blunt than I do. Paul, by the time in his journey, has already, by the time in his second missionary journey, he's already likely written a letter to some Christians that he's going to be visiting before our study is done here, the Galatians. And I don't know if it can get any clearer than this, verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, the BSB puts quotations around sinners, I think showing that Paul is using that term a little bit illustratively. He's saying that we're the Jewish people, we're the chosen race, we're not the sinful Gentiles. But even we know, verse 16, that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I wonder if you heard that. Seems plain and simple. It's not about the law, it's about faith in Jesus. Or Paul says this to the Galatians in chapter 3. He says, So the law became our guardian to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You know, it doesn't take rocket science to compute what Paul has just said. We no longer need the law. This is strong stuff. That's why if you were here last week, you might remember uh, Jim Wolbright read some text of another letter of Paul and explained that both back then and in our day, Paul receives a lot of criticism. This is why. 
One more important thing to point out before we return our, to our passage in Acts and connect to what Paul is talking about, needing to make this feast. I think the council was able to dole out their requirements on the Gentile Christians with ease for a very important reason. I say with ease because, what, all we heard was don't worship any other gods, don't eat idol food, don't engage in sexual immorality, a few laws. Because the council rightfully discerned that Christ and his Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the new covenant. The new covenant promised to be much more and a much better of an authority on guiding people to live righteous lives more than a rule book ever could. The author of Hebrews, many believe to be Paul or closely associated with him, connects this new covenant and by its mere coming, the first one disappearing. Uh, We read in verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they they did not abide by my covenant and I disregarded them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and inscribe them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Now, after quoting Jeremiah, the author of Hebrews comments, By speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This is what the council believes is happening in Jesus before their eyes. Fulfillment of the inauguration of this new covenant brought by Christ. And if the law is in their minds and inscribed on their hearts, then what people should follow is the Holy Spirit and not lose themselves in guilt and shame and overanalyze the law to death, hoping they'll be righteous. So what's Paul talking about to the Ephesians if he said these words, which I'm inclined to believe that he did? I must, by all means, keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will come back to you if God is willing. I personally think it goes back to the Nazarite vow. If if you remember, I said the Nazarite vow ends with the ceremony that happens at the tabernacle or the temple. And Paul lived when there was a temple in Jerusalem. And the ceremonial offerings at the end was also offering one's cut hair to be burnt up. And it could be that Paul still has his hair that he shaved in century, and he intends to make it to this feast so he can probably properly end his voluntary Nazarite vow. And so even though he's finally in Ephesus, the place... I think he wanted to go when when he even set out on his second missionary journey. Ephesus, which would indeed be a Christian center of activity or a hub. It just so happens when he finally makes it to Ephesus, I wonder if he's tested. (laughs) Because, again, he's entered into this Nazarite vow, which was and has been voluntary, but vows with God are no small thing. 
Maybe in our contemporary language, you might better understand them as sacred resolutions, not just New Year's resolutions. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it, because he takes no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, and do not tell the messenger that your vow was a mistake. Some say angel there. Why would God, why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For as many dreams bring futility, so do many words, therefore fear God. Have you ever had those resolutions with God? Maybe New Year's resolutions were ones where you didn't make with anyone, you just said to yourself, I'm gonna eat better this year, I'm gonna read the Bible more this year, and this year turned into a few weeks. I got to be honest, a few years ago, I would try to do Facebook fasts with God. And then I got convicted by this passage. These were understandings where I'd tell myself, and I think I just try to go about it prayerfully. I'm only going to use Facebook on Sundays. I'll just post my sermon, catch up with the week's post, and I'll be done. Because I felt like Facebook had occupied my time too much, but that didn't last. (laughs) The way that Solomon talks and the way that Paul is having his plans changed when he was willing to miss the festivals whenever he lived in Corinth, but whenever he's in Ephesus, he says, no, I need to go to Jerusalem this time. I don't think it's because he thinks he's saved by the law. That's not at all his thinking. He's taking the personal exercise of discipline and his vow and the understanding he has with God in this season serious. He told God, I'm going to do this vow in this season of my life. I'm going to make it to Jerusalem as a way of saying thanks for your faithfulness. But then his desired of city of Ephesus is in his hands. But Paul is faithful and says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'll be back here if God wills it, but my vow is too serious to just throw it out whenever I'm tempted. And I love that the temptation here is a good thing. It shows us that we can get tempted by a good thing. I've met so many Christians dragged down, drained spiritually by good things, by staying too busy with too many Christian things until, as one pastor I've heard say, we get so caught up in the ministry of the Lord that we forget the Lord of the ministry. Here was Paul in Ephesus, capital city, just as noteworthy as Corinth, a place where a lot of fertile missionary ground could likely be had. But he leaves knowing Priscilla and Aquila are here. Um, 1 Corinthians 16.19 tells us that uh, Priscilla and Aquila uh, has a house in Ephesus or bought one apparently while they were there to have big enough to have a church meet there. Now, Luke wraps up Paul's second missionary journey and then starts his third one with two quick verses wherein a geography of over 1,500 miles is covered by Paul. He didn't have an airplane. When Paul had landed at Caesarea, this is a, a port town, the same place where Paul, upon conversion, was smuggled from Damascus and then sent down to Caesarea to ship him off to his hometown of Tarsus. Caesarea is also the same place where Cornelius was at and Peter was called to him. Paul landed at Caesarea. He went up elevation-wise. Geographically, he went south. 
and he greeted the church at Jerusalem. Now, the actual words in the Greek just say he greeted the church. And the BSB footnotes it for us. But seeing how such a general statement, the church, coupled with the words went up, always corresponds going up to Jerusalem whenever Luke uses language like that. That's why most people believe this is certainly a reference to Jerusalem. Then he went down um, to another hint. He's descending Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, Jerusalem to Antioch is only a mere 200 miles. <laughs> On foot, maybe horseback. Verse 23, after Paul had spent some time in Antioch. Now, let's remember that this is kind of Paul's home church. This is where he started his missionary journeys. It's the church that he and Barnabas had kind of built up together. And when Paul and Barnabas left on their first missionary journey back in Acts 13, they left from this church. They were prayed over at this church. And then after that council we just talked about, Paul and Barnabas delivered that letter to this church. And then Barnabas took the same Mark, whose gospel account bears his name. And Paul took Silas. And I was just thought I should mention that both Silas and Timothy, who have been traveling with Paul, I believe were left in Corinth. He hasn't been, they haven't been mentioned since then. So after Paul spent some time here again, he traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. A few words, but no small feat. In fact, the Cilician gates Paul had to pass through to get back through Galatia and Phrygia is no walk in the park either. Paul is having to go up the rugged Taurus Mountains. I meant to put a picture on the slideshow, but just go home and Google that and then go through towns in which he had been stoned and attacked before. He's back on his third missionary journey. It seems kind of anticlimactic whenever you think about the memorable beginnings of the other first two journeys. But, uh, you know, it's feel like Paul just came back for missionary furlough and he's going back out. We see that coupled with Paul's intense travel and physical activity is Paul's spiritual nurturing. See, uh, if you or I wonder, Paul, you say you were released from the law, but you're doing vows, you're going to Jerusalem for feasts you say aren't necessary anymore, you're traveling hundreds of miles to towns where you were stoned, and you're going over rugged terrain, and how many of us lamented that we had to face the bitter cold again, we had to lose our Sunday morning time, and we had to travel to church to listen to me preach, of all people. You know, for Paul... He's not an American freedom lover. He doesn't worship liberty, freedom, self-autonomy, the ability to make personal choices. He worships Jesus. His desire is Jesus. His sole devotion is being more like Jesus, so much so he voluntarily enters into self-imposed regulations at times just to hone in his holiness. There's this paradox in Christ. We bring all of our sin. He brings His Son. He dies for our sin. We're released from sins. We're released from the law. We're put into freedom. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But the paradox, when we've been freed from sin and given the grace to see God, we see that the greatest treasure in life and the greatest joy in life is to then willingly submit the language of slavery 
to him. To him. And it's no longer about, oh joy, I'm free, I've got rights, freedoms, and autonomy. But it's about, oh joy, Christ. Paul says, I count all things as lost compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have lost all things. All the freedoms that he might be able to have, all the liberties, he disciplines himself because, he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul says that his affections for Christ are so much that everything else is rubbish. His desire is to be found in Him, not having my own righteousness from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to Him in His death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, and you say amen to that, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. Friends, you and I have the freedom to discipline ourselves. I don't know. I just don't think as Americans we utilize that freedom too much. The Christian life can be cultivated more than just reading the Bible every day and going to the church every Sunday. When's the last time you voluntarily fasted with God? Even just a meal a day, and instead of eating that meal, you're reading more Bible, you're praying more. When's the last time you've sacrificially, understand that word, given to the work of God, whether that be out of your wallet or out of your schedule? When's the last time you committed to a project with God? God, help me to fully study, understand, and saturate in this book of the Bible for the next two months. Something like that. Ralph read for us earlier that Jesus talks about removing an eye, a hand, or a foot if it causes us to sin. Well, because if we sin by lusting, we couldn't lust anymore with just one eye, right? Wrong. Let alone if we had no eyes, I'm sure our imaginations would help out. Maybe self-mutilation is not the point of that passage. Maybe intentionally limiting freedoms even drastically, is. Maybe if a TV isn't good for your family, it should be thrown out. Maybe if the computer or your phone isn't good for you spiritually, you should throw it out. Maybe you need to enter a season where God disrupts your schedule, and if you got to get out of Ephesus so you can make it to Jerusalem, because you have an understanding with God, maybe you should. What does God want you to do in your life this season? Let's pray. Father, um, maybe it's hard to see in our culture, even in our identity as Americans, but we can be freedom idolaters, freedom lovers. Not saying freedom is a bad thing, but whenever anything becomes to be treasured more than you, it becomes a bad thing rather quickly. 
Thank you for this example of Paul, who is probably the most articulate on preaching freedom in Christ, freedom from the law, who makes it a point to inhibit his freedoms, to take a spiritual season in the means of grace with you, to voluntarily enter into this vow as he wants to spend this season, focusing on you, thanking you, being faithful to you, making it to a feast, not because he finds it, it's what saves him, but because of this understanding he has with you. Father, help us if we're more interested in all the freedoms that we can have, if we're more interested in cheap grace and knowing that we're saved in you and we don't do anything to save ourselves. Father, help us to see the value in revering you in taking seasons of of holiness, seasons of where we deepen our holiness with you because we're focusing on you more than our desires. Father, if you should convict any of us to drastically limit our freedom because we know we're prone to sin with something in the house, help us to be obedient to you. If you're convicting us to enter into a time of fasting or of engaging more Bible study, or even if it's sacrificing our comfort because you want us to become friends with someone, Father, whatever it is, we just pray that we would be obedient. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to give us that ability to be obedient. We pray against the enemy. Um, We pray against the enemy whenever that enemy is us. We ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.